Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. British ultra-hawk Liz Truss takes the wheel in the UK at a time when Russian sanctions are causing energy prices to soar. Also, Truss has indicated that UK relations with China will deteriorate under her leadership. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we got Jamal Thomas. He's the host of the one and only Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik, Monday through Friday from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern, right here in Washington, D.C. Jamal Thomas, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Oh, thanks, Ben. You doing all right? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. Labor, Labor Party members, progressives and critical voices worldwide registered concern and condemnation Monday after the Conservative Party in the UK voted to make Liz Truss, formerly the foreign secretary, the nation's next prime minister to replace the outgoing Boris Johnson. There is great trepidation around the world regarding one Liz Truss. You are in the UK. What's happening there, Jamal Thomas? So it's fascinating, right? Liz Truss has taken power at this point, officially. Um, Boris Johnson has gone to the Queen, or this trust has gone to the Queen, and she's ascended to the throne of prime ministership. Um, but whatever is coming out of the speeches, the public seems to have a different take on the events. Um, everybody I talked to, I talked to like 10 or more people just kind of going through the UK, and all of them pretty much have a pessimistic point of view about what they expect her to do. I mean, after all, this trust, they're expecting 18.6% increase. In regards to inflation next year, that's an astonishing number, and that's already what they're already over ten percent right now. Um, the people were extremely concerned about paying for the energy bills. They were extremely concerned about paying for food bills. Um, one guy, more than one person, actually was like, food prices almost doubled for him, depending upon what you're buying and what you're eating. And they're, you know, from the perspective of the various people who are in the country itself, they are, at least the people I've spoken to, less confident that the new government is going to do anything more than the old government did. And to make it even worse, Liz Truss is, you thought Boris Johnson's bad. <laughs> Liz Truss is a warhawk's warhawk. I mean, she even made point of talking about sending troops to, um, that we should send troops to Ukraine from the UK. I mean, some of this stuff is just unhinged, but she is the person who is now in the prime ministership. Um, and they have basically chosen a hard ladder. The wild part is though, Liz Truss, it's going to have to deal with things that go beyond the issue of Ukraine, even though that's what she seems to be focusing on. I mean, I think there was estimates that her first call was going to be to Zelensky. But I make the point that, you know, part and parcel to the reason that I would argue Boris Johnson failed in his prime ministership. Prime ministers have had to deal with political intrigue prior. They didn't necessarily resign. Um, but if you have a situation where people are going more to food banks, if you have a situation where you can't necessarily afford food or energy, then, yeah, the prime minister is going to have a hard way to go. The issue is, though, that Liz Truss seems to be a worse version of Boris Johnson and up to this point has not given, let's say, detailed or specifics of what she's going to do about the main issue, which is energy and cost. Everybody that you talk to, cost comes up. Like I would ask people, I'll say, hey, what do you think about your new prime minister? And then the floodgates would open. Oh, I don't expect her to do anything. They have all sorts of issues in the UK, um, Brexit. And that's the wild part. Britain hasn't recovered from the previous shocks that it experienced, whether it's Brexit, whether it's COVID. And now you have the situation with the gas energy or the energy costs for Ukraine. None of those things 
are clear in regards to solutions that they're going to take. None of them. And up to this point, Liz Trust has made all sorts of promises like, oh, we're going to deal with this in the first week. But yeah, specifics are, are the issue, right? Like we need to know what you're going to do when you're dealing with those issues. And up to this point, it is unclear what this trust has in mind. Um, I think she's floated a freeze on energy costs. But again, freezing energy costs doesn't necessarily help if energy costs are frozen at the high point. <laughs> like if you like meaning, if you say, okay, we're going to hit 100 um, and we're going to freeze them there from here on out. Well, what about the people who can't afford that because the energy prices basically jump exponentially at that point? But what about the people who can't afford the food because the food prices jump exponentially? Yes, you can freeze it at that high point, but that's secondary to the point of whether or not they can even afford it at that number. Um, no, the public doesn't seem to be all that optimistic. And unfortunately, they don't seem to have a political way out. They even made the point of saying, kind of like in the U.S. where you get like 50% of the population to vote. They was like, yeah, we think people are going to basically have started stopped voting or, or the really stuff cut down on the amount that they vote because they're basically they don't think it matters no the expectations around trust are very low are very low and i suspect she knows that which is the reason why she's not going to have an election anytime soon so expectations are low that makes it sound to me a lot like george w bush mm-hmm. expectations are him were sub low <laughs> below low so he didn't have he didn't have to do that much in order for it to appear to be for him to appear to be competent. With Liz Truss beating Rishi Sunak in a very narrow, with a very narrow margin, two things. Where, where is he in, in the mix? And is this really just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? That's all it is, right? I mean, because basically it's still the same Tory party. It's still the same Tory party that support of Ukraine hasn't changed. These guys are still um, right wingers, hasn't changed. They've moved the deck chairs. The thing is that what may change, though, is the level of hawkishness and rhetoric that comes out of the prime minister, uh, which, again, considering Boris Johnson just left, that seems to be rather astonishing that he can't even get worse. But Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, and many of the other conservatives have gotten on this thing of, okay, we need to mend the party, we need to come together. Etc. Up to this point, she has been talking only to conservatives or to Tory members. She's had to make her case to members of the Tory party. Well, now she has to talk to the rest of the population and to get that population on side. So Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, all of them came out basically say, OK, election over with. Let's support um, this trust. Let's get behind her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it's like you're getting behind her. But what she's going to do at this point is somewhat unclear. We know she wants to cut taxes, which. Look, like I said, 18.6% inflation, um, the Fed rate, um, interest rates going up. She's like, yeah, we need to cut taxes. We need to put more money into the economy. The money is just going to the rich. The money is it's not like she's cutting taxes to get them under the poor. Um, all things been equal, we are unclear. She even made this line of saying basically, um, and we're going to like to suss out the NHS in her speech when she accepted it. Um, and nobody is like, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> the rub is, I, I, I got to be honest. They are trying to fall in behind um, trust. Now, Sunak is interesting because all things been equal, there is a perception in the Tory party that Sunak was responsible for Boris Johnson losing his prime ministership. Maybe. The thought is that Sunak was responsible for putting a knife in Boris Johnson. Now, whether it's true or not, a third of the people who were basically voting wanted Johnson back. Meaning if they could have put Johnson's name back on that ballot, they would have put Johnson's name back on that ballot. And the estimation is that all of those people who basically wanted Johnson back voted trust. It's 
fascinating stuff. Like they are um, – it's just super weird to see the political space and the things that they say versus the public itself and to see the level at which the public is dejected and skeptical that anything that they do in government is going to have any kind of real-world um, physical matter benefit to the various people in the country except with the exception of the people who are basically um, the wealth of the nation. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, Jamal, you're actually in the UK. You know, you're there. What is your experience? Are you seeing, other than your discussions with people, you know, the evidence of prices, the evidence of what's going on there? Uh, one other quick thing. And um, we know that there are some major protests going. Are you hearing anything about protests in Europe, period? I know you've been traveling about Europe, but let me throw all that stuff together. Your thoughts? So speaking to some people, some people have made a point of saying there are going to be riots if this keeps up. and one person even made a point of saying it's just waiting for a match, meaning they're waiting for like something to take place, something to pop off, in which case he fully believes that there's going to be like rioting and protesting in the streets. And like if you look at Prague right now, like we had nearly 100,000 people in Prague of all places. And it's like it's Prague. I don't think I've ever heard of a protest in Prague, let alone <laughs> 70,000 people I'm showing up to protest. But again, it makes sense in a certain way. If you tell Europe, uh, like again, I keep pointing out this is not Timbuktu. If you tell Europeans who's used to be fed, who's used to being fat, who used to be happy, who used to having, you know, their ends meet in this awesome social safety net, and when they hit the lights, the lights come on, um, that, yeah, you're going to have to be cold going forward for the foreseeable future. And, yeah, you may be food insecure going forward for the foreseeable future. And we're doing this for Ukraine. Oh, people love that. <laughs> Good luck with that. I mean, Europe may accept, meaning they may accept the framing that the government's put out. But whether they accept the framing or not is secondary to the point than whether they would accept the hit for what you are trying to get them to believe. That's the catch. And so I haven't heard any protests taking place in the UK um, yet. Um, but, of course, you know, Macron loves his governing majority. Draghi jumped ship. I mean, the Italian government basically collapsed. You had uh, what? Buda, not Buda, also this country called um, – oh, I can't think of the name of it. Just, it's, it's the tip of my tongue. But you basically had many of these governments that are under severe economic stress. And from the standpoint of the public, it doesn't seem like the public knows a way out. And specifically speaking for the UK, the public doesn't know a way out. Meaning they, they look at this and they think labor isn't any better. Like, don't get me wrong, they may put more people on the government dime, but all things been equal. This idea of Keir Starmer, who has the charisma of a, of a wet blanket, um, they, don't, they have no faith in either to do anything real or substantial for their benefits, which is creating a certain amount of anger in regards to the population. Anybody will talk about it. It's just the wildest thing in the world. As soon as you say, hey, Liz Truss is going to be a prime minister, what do you think? Floodgates open. Floodgates open. Don't matter who you talk to. You talk to a doctor, talk to a cab driver, talk to the guy in the hotel, talk to somebody on the street. doesn't matter. All of them have that same thing, and none of them are optimistic in regards to her capabilities to do the job. That pessimism as it relates to Tories versus labor sounds very much like here, Republican versus Democrat. Uh, really, I the exact same. Well, that means I must be right if I'm thinking along your lines and <laughs> yeah, I must be I right. Yeah, I exact same thing, yeah. Uh, yeah. But in turn, UK relations with China unlikely to improve. Are you getting any – what's the sense you get there uh, about any kind of anti-China sentiment? Well, see, I haven't really heard too much anti-China sentiment. They're so focused on hating Russians. Like all these many cores, like we, we don't have the bandwidth to hate two people at the same time. So we're going to take our time. You know, we're going to hate one and hate the other. No, their thing, I, what, the people have made the point of saying the issue of Ukraine is 
you only allow one position on it. Now, I don't know if that's one position from the standpoint of media, but all things being equal, they make the point you can only have one position on the issue of Ukraine. But I haven't heard them say anything about China per se. And I would imagine that, you know, from the standpoint of the Ukraine issue and the gas prices and all this other stuff, China may just be out of eyesight, shot to all of us. Like, meaning it, it's, they are being affected dramatically based on what is taking place on the issue of Ukraine. And so the news is basically, and what they're talking about, the psychos, is around that. Those dastardly Russians. How dare they do that? Boris Johnson, even in his closing speech, oh, Vladimir Putin's fault. It's all his fault. It's all his fault. And I, I remember having a conversation with um, somebody there, and it was like, well, you had to help Ukraine, you know, fight the Russians. And I kind of make the point, I said, so would the UK be okay with that? He said, what do you mean? I said, if Russia knocked over the government of Mexico, put weapons in on that government, aimed them at the United States, would you say, and would Europe say, well, Mexico is a sovereign nation, Mexico can do whatever they want, even if they want to aim missiles at the United States? He says, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, meaning they never get the contrary <laughs> conversation where you're talking to them because they only get one line. And the moment you kind of bring this up and they're just kind of relaying back and forth, they're like, yeah, that's an interesting point that you're making there. That's right, it's an interesting point because it's true. All things been equal, they're so focused on the issue of Ukraine. It seems that Russia is the thing that's the, um, the biggest issue. It, Russia and the issue of gas and costs and, and so forth. I guess the question is, how long are they going to be willing to take this hit? And whether they're able to take it or willing to take it longer or not is almost secondary to the point that Russia at this point is, seems to be aiming their energies towards the east and the west. Meaning they're going to have to deal with this stuff for the foreseeable future uh, for years on end. And by the way, they never recovered from other stuff. Like I hadn't been in the, in the UK for so long. I didn't I hadn't been there since Brexit. Last time I was in the UK, it was before while they were still in the European Union. They're even taking a hit from that. Like the number of people that have left, people who are from other countries, um, I, people impressed upon me that, look, just like in the United States, there's certain jobs that Englishmen won't do. Like, you know, in our case, it's the Hispanics or people coming from South America that's helping with this and that. And he says, um, all things being equal, when we pull out of the European Union, a lot of those people just left. And so you have these openings that can't be filled for certain jobs. And on top of that, you have real estate that basically is going empty. Um, taxes or the cost went up almost immediately with Brexit because, again, stuff had to go across borders and you made it more complicated in order to get that stuff done. And so they never really recovered from the first few shots. Yet, what Brexit, COVID, and now this. Wow. It's well, a slap in the face. Uh, things are not pretty there. Well, get home safely and avoid any riots and don't get eaten by hungry people. Jamal Thomas <laughs> is the host of Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik, Monday through Friday from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here in Washington, D.C. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Gazprom has advised the EU that gas transit via Nord Stream 1 will cease until sanctions are lifted. Also, Germany is in an economic freefall, and there seems to be no possibility of avoiding a severe recession. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we've got Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thank you, Garland. Uh, and I must say at the outset, congratulations on making Newsweek, uh, <laughs> even though they described you as a low-life scum. Um, I have to tell you that in this connection, we have news here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, speaking of low-life scum, George W. Bush is coming to address the Boy Scouts of America here in Raleigh on the 14th of September. And he's going to be talking about leadership qualities and so forth. This is the same fellow, of course, who uh, slipped and then laughed at his, his, uh, his mistake by saying, you know, the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Ukraine. <laughs> and they laughed. Well, uh, I just want to let everybody who knows or, or is near Raleigh know that the 14th is the day. And, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to laugh here in Raleigh. We're not going to laugh at all. It's not going to be the same as Dallas. So if you want to come and join the fun, uh, <laughs> if we can call it fun, it's going to be different from Dallas. That's all I can say at this point. All right. So your interesting article, um, Human Lemmings Freeze, did President Joe Biden's economic advisors not warn him that the lemming leaders of NATO will not be able to, to protect their people from winter cold? The people are in the streets. They got no gas. And the bad times haven't even began to start yet, Ray. You know, it's uh, it's really just short of totally amazing that uh, Bush and his sophomoric advisors are just waking up to this. I mean, it's been no secret uh, that Russia has enormous economic and other leverage uh, with the people who need to heat their homes and their offices and their factories, including during the winter. They need Russian gas. That was no secret to anyone. And uh, I suppose that Blinken and Sullivan and all those sophomores that are advising Biden, I suppose they thought if if uh, Putin, well, that Putin might be afraid of us wagging our finger and saying, ha ha, you're weaponizing gas and oil, bad, bad boy. Oh, God. You know, how naive can they be? Long story short, Massive demonstrations in Prague over the weekend. Lots of trouble to come. Liz Trust, Liz, whatever her name is, <laughs> uh, already installed at Downey Street. I mean, there's trouble ahead for Europe. And what we're trying to tell people is, look, uh, you ought to wake up here. Um, the Russians have the leverage on this. When I wrote this last Friday, um, the Russians suggested, well, we need to fix the pipe, uh, Nord Stream 1, and, you know, it's a, we don't know when it's going to be fixed. <laughs> and then just yesterday, they said, we know it's going to be fixed <laughs> only when Western sanctions are lifted. Got it? Got that? Okay. So what's going to happen? Well, you know, there are, there are limits to, to human lemmings, endurance of chill. You know, the, <laughs> I looked up lemmings. The animal lemmings, they have this protective coat of fur, really thick. They don't even have to hibernate at the top of the Arctic Circle, okay? Not so with human lemmings. And so Scholz and Macron and all these people, who could have prevented the invasion of Ukraine are going to have to figure out some way 
to keep their folks from freezing. The sensible thing, of course, is to make a deal with the Russians. Sanctions lifting for sanctions lifting. But there's no, you know, I, I wish I could predict that there are West European leaders who are sensible these days. I cannot predict that. And what, seven, eight decades after World War II, they're still acting as uh, as adult children of <laughs> children of alcoholics or uh, power hungry people. They still do everything as lemmings do if the first one goes over the cliff. And the first one is always the United States of America. As you say, uh, sanctions lifting for sanctions lifting, and then children of alcoholic, adult children of alcoholic parents, Boris Johnson, goes to Kiev and, and won't allow a negotiation to take place. And you have a, another, a subheading in your piece, Watch Your Step, and <laughs> incredibly clever use of words, uh, S-T-E-P-P-E, uh, where not only uh, is the United States sending the, 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 the lemmings off the cliff, but sending them into the open step to be shelled. Yeah. That's not wise either. Yeah, this is a, a human tragedy. I mean, as stupid and as comical as it might seem to anyone who knows anything about military history or what the step looks like, I mean, this is a really step in the wrong direction, so to speak. The, the Russians are shelling the hell out of these counteroffensive folks that Ukraine is sending down to the Kherson area. Uh, the Ukrainians don't have a prayer of making any real inroads there. And so you ask, well, why are they doing this? Well, it's very simple. Um, Zelensky needs to prove that there's still life. Not still life, but there's, there's still alive, these Ukrainian armed forces, okay? And they just need better weapons. They need longer range weapons. With, with small weapons from the West, uh, the next charge of the light brigade, if you will, is going to is going to succeed. See, so the question really is, are the are the Europeans so naive as not to see this for what it is? I mean, it's a ploy. How how long will they tolerate this? Uh, well, we got to suffer for the Ukrainians when number one, the Ukrainians are bound to lose, and number two. Uh, you know, well, two thirds of the arms help or supply that's coming from the West are disappearing into the black market. We know that. CBS reported that and then had to delete that part of his report. So are the West Europeans so stupid as they're going to freeze this winter? We'll have to see. It's quite possible they are. I kind of think that they're going to lean real hard now on Washington and say, look, we've done everything you told us so far. We're going to freeze. We're going to freeze this winter. Let us negotiate. Let's hope that that happens. Yeah, and Washington, Washington will tell them they should be proud <laughs> to, to give their lives on behalf of Victoria Newland. You should be proud. Uh, speaking of which, you have, uh, along with some other people from Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, authored a, a, a some recommendations, shall we say, to the President of the United States that we can be it can be found in Andawar.com. Veteran Intelligence Professionals Ukraine decision time for Biden, Ray McGovern. Well, occasionally on really crucial junctures, uh, we do this. We're reti retired, but we're still compass mentis, and we've been around for a long time. That should help. 
Now, uh, Secretary Austin uh, from the Pentagon is going off to Rammstein for a meeting on Thursday of the so-called Ukraine Defense Contact Group. And the first thing we thought that uh, Biden should know is, look, if if Austin tells you that the Ukrainians are winning and they're beating back the Russians, for God's sake, kick the tires. <laughs> kick the, <laughs> now, for the younger generation, that's what we knew had to do when we bought a used car or, you know, we bought even a new car in the old days. You kick the tires, at least to see if the tires were all right. Now, we go on to say that whatever Austin tells you, uh, he himself has a record, as do all his recent predecessors as Secretary of Defense, of lying through their teeth when there's a war on. That's part of war, for God's sake. Truth is the first casualty of war, and it certainly obtains in the Pentagon. So we go through a little history of our own experience. Going back to Vietnam, we could have back, gone back further, going back to Vietnam and ending up with uh, the kinds of chicanery that went down at CENTCOM down in Tampa, Florida, when who, who but General Lloyd Austin was in charge. Now we finish up with, we don't make policy recommendations, but what we say as intelligence officers is, look, um, uh, Austin's interlocutors, the, the people he'll be talking to on Thursday, the ones in Rammstein, they come from all over Europe and elsewhere, uh, they're going to be chastened by the new notion that the gas cutoff is like forever until the sanctions are removed. You ought to tell Austin to be prepared for that, because if he's going to try to get the West Europeans and the East Europeans to supply more more weapons instead of blankets, well, that's going to be real, real problem. Okay. Now the other thing is that the Blinken and Sullivan know nothing about European history. They only know what they learned at the Ivy League schools, and you know if. Austin wants them to uh, offer more stuff here. Uh, if he follows that script, he's not going to get any takers because these guys are a little shell-shocked now. Uh, they may just they may start just short of the end of the cliff before, like lemmings, they jump off. Germany can't avoid recession. A $65 billion euro financial aid package has the latest attempt, as the latest attempt to ease inflation-driven pressure from a tightening power supply crisis won't help the EU's biggest economy. So not only are they having problems in, in, in Ray, not only will they need blankets, they'll need mittens and, and, uh, and socks as well, but they have a huge problem with recession. So they're getting hit from multiple fronts and the people aren't going to sit idly by for the sake of Ukraine. We've only got about a minute and a half, Ray. Yeah, for the sake of Ukraine or for the sake of the United States? Pick now, one. You know, I, I, thought, I thought they were analogous. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to do an invidious comparison, <laughs> we're not going to freeze this winter, are we? Matter of fact, we're cutting back on gas supplies to Europe right now as we speak. Now, Europeans aren't so dumb as not to realize 
that we're sitting high here, high and dry. They're going to be wet and cold. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of a stretch to justify this by, hey, we need to sacrifice to support arms for Ukraine, 70% of which never gets to the front lines. It's going to be a task. Maybe propaganda can do it. I think maybe not this time. Yeah, you can't burn uh, propaganda in your uh, in your in your uh, furnace. So I think they're going to have some problems. Ray McGovern's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. You can go to RayMcGovern.com for all of his good stuff, including his appearances here, right here on the Critical Hour. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets in European cities to protest the economic hardships brought on by Russian sanctions. Protesters in Prague have demanded that their nation's leaders resign on or before September 25th. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Scott Ritter. He's an author and a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. In Prague, 70,000 people took to the streets on Saturday to protest against the sharp rise in energy prices and to demand a neutral position on the war in Ukraine. The organizers said after the end of the demonstration that if the government does not resign by 25th September, they will announce pressure actions and will plan for another protest on 28th September. One Scott Ritter, many months ago on this very show, predicted this was going to come and said none of these governments are going to stand. Uh, Scott, I think they're asking nicely this time. I think after the 25th of September, they ain't going to be asking nicely anymore. Scott Ritter. Well, I mean, again, I'm not encouraging um, violence in the streets or anything other than peaceful civil disobedience. Um, (laughs) But I don't get a vote. Um, and I'm, I'm here in the United States where, you know, I have, you know, uh, sufficient energy. I have food. Um, you know, it, it prices may go up, but I'm going to be comfortable this winter. Europe is not going to be comfortable this winter. Um, not only are they lacking the energy necessary to, you know, heat their homes, um, they're lacking the energy necessary to uh, keep their industrial base active. Uh, They're shutting down uh, smelting plants across Europe because the cost of, you know, one of the largest consumers of natural gas in Europe is, uh, is metallurgy plants. Uh, They use the gas to fire up their, their forges and such. And um, they're shutting down. They can't afford the, uh, can't afford the energy bill. Uh, This means that people are unemployed. So when you take unemployment and you combine that with um, discomfort, uh, you you got a problem, and Europe has a problem, and it's all over Europe. There's not a single country that isn't going to be impacted by this, save the handful which have been wise enough to enter into direct energy relationships with Russia. But everybody else who arrogantly believed 
that by sanctioning Russia, you could bring the Russian government to its knees and compel the Russians to retreat from Ukraine. Um, they're, they're going to suffer, and the governments that made those policies are going to collapse. It's, I mean, again, I, I, I'm not gloating. I, I hate to see this. I don't want anybody to suffer. But um, what goes around comes around, and if you govern in a manner which brings harm to the people you're supposed to be representing, then you shall pay the political price. And that political price sometimes manifests itself with massive demonstrations in the street calling for your removal from power. Two things that I found interesting in this article. One is it says 70,000 people took to the streets uh, protesting against the sharp rise in energy prices and a demand to a neutral position on the Ukraine war. It wasn't that they're demanding a pro-Russian or a pro, they're demanding neutrality. And the second thing I found interesting was the prime minister said the event was called by forces that claim to have pro-Russian orientation, are close to extremists, and are against the interests of the Czech Republic. And I wondered particularly with this pro-Russian orientation allegation, is that is that being used as a uh, as a tagline as here being a Russian bot is, or being anti-Semitic is supposed to be the designation of death? Yes, there's there's no doubt that uh, what we're going to see and what we're seeing and what we're going to see going forward is any dissent is going to be labeled as being pro-Russian and therefore anti-democratic and, and in some extreme cases unpatriotic. This is, the, of course, you know, the page out of the Ukrainian book, uh, who not only murdered their own citizens for uh, voicing um, opposition to the policies of the Zelensky government, but target foreigners for assassination as well. Um, anybody who dares speak out is immediately labeled uh, as a pro-Russian propagandist, information terrorist, etc. And, you know, we know that this isn't just a Ukrainian-only um, tactic because just uh, earlier earlier this month, September 1st and 2nd, the uh, Center for Countering Disinformation, um, having pulled its blacklist, republished it, this time in a um, conference that was attended by virtually every NATO ambassador. Uh, representatives of the Department of State. Uh, they doubled down on what an information terrorist was, uh, meaning that it's real terrorism, that it's not, you know, pseudo-terrorism. Information terrorists should be treated as you would any other terrorist. That means kill them. Um, and so when you have these nations, these NATO nations, including the Czech Republic, uh, attending um, this, this, you know, new publication of this new blacklist, uh, what they're saying is that's our tactic, too, and that's what we're going to see uh, coming into the fall. And the problem with that tactic, tactic is it not only is inaccurate, but it undermines the very principles of democracy that these nations are supposed to be espousing. I mean, when did it become illegal to freely assemble, to voice your displeasure with those whom you elect to a uh, higher office? When did that become a, um, a criminal act or an act of treason. 
Uh, and yet that's what they want. They want blind obedience. They want people to salute smartly and say whatever they want to say uh, to, in support of uh, in, in support of the government's policies. And God forbid anybody stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I don't have a job, and it's all because of you and your policies vis-a-vis uh, Ukraine. Oh, oh, that's unpatriotic. Uh, Scott, we see Italy is facing, as they say, the EU faces a big risk of potential far-right vic- victory in in Italy. It ain't a risk. It's going to. It's about pretty much a foregone conclusion. The Slovak government loses majority, and you don't have to read far to say the resignations mean NATO and European members, uh, member countries' center-right cabinet will lose its parliamentary majority, complicating its situation as it seeks to tackle a mounting energy crisis. You don't have to look far to see what's at the root of this. President Erdogan of Turkey basically said, Europe is reaping what it sows when it comes to natural gas shortages. I'm like you. I oppose violence 100 percent, but I'm not stupid, and I understand that there are natural reactions to things. And if people are hungry and their kids don't have food and their grandfather is is freezing to death, it's going to get ugly. And there is no censorship or Ukrainian hit list that's going to stop that uh, snowball rolling downhill, Scott. There ain't a hit list big enough. Um, <laughs> if it was, uh, then it's a declaration of war, which pretty much, frankly speaking, is is, is what's occurring. Uh, you know, there's an old uh, saying, um, you know, every society is just nine missed meals away from chaos and anarchy. Uh, Europe's going to have many nine missed meal moments this winter. Um, it's going to get ugly. In England, uh, you know, I, I, it's not wide knowledge here, but... They're already preparing what they call warm rooms in hospitals, uh, in, in, in public homes, et cetera, because they will not have sufficient energy to heat the hospitals. So they will be taking the patients and bringing them together into a warm room uh, because they can only afford to heat one room. Uh, homes are going to be doing the same thing. Many homes will go without energy. People will freeze to death. And it's not just that. Because when you disrupt that kind of energy, you're disrupting every aspect of the economy to include supply chains. There will be major food disruptions. People are going to go hungry. People are going to starve. There will be rioting in the streets. And not just in the countries, you know, that that Americans can barely pronounce um, or or know little of or maybe even can't point out to on the map in Europe. Uh, But in countries like Germany, we've heard... German politicians say there will be violent riots in the street. I mean, this, this is serious stuff. This is the kind of economic-based revolutionary moments uh, that, you know, Europe hasn't experienced since the end of the First World War, um, when you had collapse of society. This isn't after the Second World War, where you had societies destroyed, occupied, and seeking to rebuild. We're talking about the collapse of Europe. Nations that, you know, just a few years ago, we'd go visit as tourists and go, oh, my goodness, the height of civilization. What wonderful people. What wonderful governments. Wow, I'm a little jealous as an American. You guys have clean cities. You have polite people, except for the French. And, you <laughs> and you know, I mean, we can go on and on. But now, no. I mean, suddenly, as bad as America is, and believe me, we got a lot of problems. You and I know this. Everybody knows this. We're going to look pretty damn good this winter because Europe is going to collapse. 
already the French are in the streets demanding the resignation of Macron because he's enacting policies which are pro-Ukrainian, anti-French. And that's what this is going to come down to. All these policies that are causing harm to the people of Europe are pro-Ukrainian policies, anti-German, anti-French, anti-Dutch, anti-Czech, anti-Slovak, you name it. And a government doesn't survive when they go against their own people, when they openly conspire to bring pain and suffering to their own people for the benefit of people who not, are not only part of their nation, but people who actually espouse values and principles that are divorced from the very things you're supposed to stand for. It will become widely recognized in the near future that Ukraine is little more than a modern-day manifestation of the sickening ideology of Stepan Bandera, because that's what it is. It's a neo-Nazi, ultra-nationalist, hate-filled country, and as these trials progress in the Donbass, as the truth of this hateful movement comes out, as recognition grows of the role they play throughout the government of Ukraine, the, the, the European people are going to say not only no way, but why did we ever go down this route? And they're not only going to react against their governments, they're going to react against institutions like NATO and the European Union and the United States, their erstwhile allies. There will be a total rejection of the organizations and alliances and nations that push them to commit national suicide for a cause that not only no one should be fighting for, but everybody should be united against. And so then where does that leave U.S. policy? I say here all the time, imperial global hegemons don't go quietly into that long, dark night. So with the pending revolts that you are projecting, and I think you're, you're pretty much spot on with what you're saying, What's going to be the reaction from the United States? Well, what happens when the Poles who are right now saying, oh, yeah, 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 bring in the Fifth Corps headquarters, bring in that brigade, do this. When the Poles are freezing to death and the people overthrow the Polish government, they turn the Americans, they get the hell out of our country. What does the United States do? Invade Poland? What happens when the Germans overthrow their government, turn the United States and say, shut down Ramstein. We don't want that base used anymore to, uh, to, to host uh, the, the Ramstein group that plans the logistical resupply of Ukraine. We're shutting that down. It's our soil. Get out. Do we invade Germany? In fact, to that point about Germany, let me just quickly ask, at what point do the Germans say, turn on Nord Stream 2? We have about a minute 15 left. Well, the Germans just came up with a <laughs> wonderful realization that said, oh my God, even if we don't take any Russian gas, we got to pay for it till 2030. Um, we're contractually obligated. I have a funny feeling the Germans in the very near future um, are going to be saying, hey, uh, Nord Stream 2 is looking pretty good. We need to turn that thing on. Uh, it may be too late. Russia may tell them to pound sand. But um, you know, at some point, Germany's entering the desperation mode right now. It, the politicians are looking to the future and recognizing that the bonfires and pitchforks are coming for them. And so you're going to see a lot of desperate moves on the part of Germany um, prior to the collapse. And the collapse is going to be ugly, and it's going to be bad for the United States, because I have a feeling that the Germans who take over are not going to be so 
client. <laughs> you know, Scott, and that's the problem with a big crowd. When you get a bad, big crowd of angry people, sooner or later, somebody in the back of the crowd, crowd starts yelling, somebody get a rope. And that's when things go bad. Scott Ritter is a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. He's an author, much more, and a friend of the show. Thanks a lot, Scott Ritter. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Chilean constitution change proposals have failed. Also, Chevron is lobbying for expanded oil licenses in Venezuela, and President Maduro has condemned the assassination attempt against Argentina's Cristina Fernandez. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq, the one and only Nicholas Davies. Nick, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. Proponents of Chile's new progressive constitution pledged to keep fighting Sunday following their crushing defeat in a plebiscite whose outcome was cheered by the oligarchs and corporations who spent heavily on the no campaign. Nick Davies, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, we've we've watched a, a, a whole series of successes for the left in uh, South and Latin America. Um over the last few months, and this this is definitely a setback. Um, however, these are the same voters who recently um, elected uh, Gabriel Boric as their president, um, the first really uh, you know leftist leader of Chile uh, since Allende, and uh, you know who of course was uh, deposed and killed in. Uh, 1973. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I, I think those of us uh, who believe in socialism and progressive and leftist politics, you know, we, we are easily discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, um, you know, but this is this is really just a small setback in Chile, and it follows it follows a pattern that uh, often these referendums, you know, like the Brexit referendum in the UK, um, and and others in other countries, um, uh, the independence referendum in Scotland too. I, I mean. When the corporate powers pour money into these campaigns, uh, you know, which are sort of up or down votes, yes or no, it is they lend themselves to the kind of simplistic scaremongering and simplistic messaging that uh, money based corrupt politics thrives on. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe this is also a signal that the, the may, may, they may need to tweak that constitution a little bit. 
before they they bring it back for another vote. But, I I mean, you know, if you present people with a a choice (laughs) between something that is unknown on the one hand and on the other hand, Pinochet's constitution, (laughs) Uh, you know, I think we can all agree that the majority of Chileans uh, are not, were not casting a positive vote to say, oh, no, we like Pinochet's constitution. Let's keep this. This is this is a really this will be a really good constitution for our country for the next hundred years. that's that's not what happened here. So I think it, when um, when Boric and the other and the um, other people involved in trying to pass the constitution um, can tweak it a little and tweak their own campaign for it a little, um, I'm sure they can come back and pass something something close to it. Um, Certainly in terms of things like indigenous rights. I mean, I think the Mapuche are probably less likely to be discouraged by this than than some of the, you know, the the more sort of liberal uh, white Chileans, uh, because the Mapuche have been fighting for 500 years, resisting the invasion and, and occupation and imperial uh, domination of their their homeland uh, for 500 years, as have Native Americans all over these uh, the Americas. Um, so I'm sure they're, they're <laughs> they'll be ready to they'll be ready to just gear up for the next round, and that's that's all, that's what this comes down to. Isn't it, though, a little deeper than Brexit, for example, since the adage was neoliberalism was born in Chile and then as a result of the election has died in Chile only for people to find out not so fast because the neoliberal policies that decimated the Chilean economy were woven into the Constitution and the subsequent constitutional referendum didn't didn't pass. So doesn't do, does that give an indication of how how deep the elites uh, how, how deep their power runs and 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 the 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 the, the, the really the major task that's going to be before the Chilean people. It just sounds to me like it's going to be more than tweaking, that there's an awful lot of work still ahead of them to get this constitution reconciled. Yeah, well, you you could be you could be right uh, that it will take a lot more work. But um, I think a lot of this is about the propaganda and the messaging. Um, I just heard Liz Truss <laughs> speaking outside 10 Downing Street uh, as she takes the, the prime ministership of, of the United Kingdom. And 
she is recycling a lot of the, the, the that same the, the, the same neoliberal uh, lies that that we have all heard now since since Reagan and Thatcher, and the the it 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 does seem incredible after it has been so discredited, the idea that by giving tax breaks to the wealthy and tax breaks to corporations, that, 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 that their increased profits will trickle down to the rest of us. I mean, um, I mean an- another problem in Chile is that as in the United States and as in um in in so much of the world the 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 news media are in the hands of the 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 neoliberal corporatocracy uh that rules our countries and and so that they can get away with recycling these these same lies and these same failed policies over and over and over again, even even as they they, they even literally as they blow up in their faces, because I, I mean Truss's speech was was a joke. I mean, on the one hand, she she was praising Boris Johnson as as you know having been such a great prime minister to to the UK, while at the same time. Uh, t- talking about the, the country being in a in a, in a crisis, <laughs> and how she was, how her policies were going to get them get them out get get them out of the crisis, and she was calling it a storm. And the British people have have ridden ridden through worse storms than this before, and uh, you know, and she has faith in the British people that they'll they'll overcome this one too. You know, with, without, you know, and I mean, it, it takes nothing to connect the dots and say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> this is, this is, this woman is Boris Johnson's successor of the people running to replace him. She was, she was closer to him than any of them. And yet she now acknowledges that he's left the country in crisis. Uh, so, I mean, the contradictions the contradictions of the neoliberal propaganda uh, are rife for all to see. You, I mean, when, we, when you talk to anyone, even in the United States, you talk to people under the age of 30 or 40 who have lived their whole lives under, un, under this neoliberal system since Reagan, since Thatcher, and, um, you know, and they are so much more aware than the older generation here of of the reality of living under such a system, living under such a system where what is it forty to forty five percent of the new growth uh, accumulates to one percent of the population. I mean, this is this is. Uh, you know this this is just robbery robbery of 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 the resources that should belong to all of us and little by little um people are learning 
but God, I mean, it is it is amazing that they can still get away with the same lies when the when the reality of what they produce is staring the public in the face. Uh, we've only got like about a minute and a half, so if we could get a very brief thoughts on uh, U.S. oil giant Chevron has reportedly applied for a broader license for its Venezuela operations. Nick. Well. Here we go again. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, apparently the, the, the take seems to be that, that, that Biden hopes to somehow negotiate political concessions from the government they have failed to overthrow in Venezuela in exchange for, for, <laughs> for, um, for buying some of the oil that 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 the U.S. and Europe so desperately need, uh, and so s- somehow they expect Maduro to make concessions uh, to do something that the U.S. needs him to do, and I, I think Maduro is a little smarter than that. Thanks a lot. We have been talking with Nicholas Davies. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. EU leaders fear the U.S. will not return to the Iran nuclear deal. Also, the U.S. has set up a new military base in Syria, and another Palestinian Palestinian journalist has been killed. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me once more. So the EU foreign policy chief says Iran a nuclear deal is in danger. Iran rejected the characterization of the U.S. and EU that its latest response was not constructive. Here's the way I see it, Leith. The U.S. still has a unipolar mentality, and they need a multipolar mentality to get a deal with Iran. They, the, the unipolar menta- mentality simply says, Iran, we will give you a list of demands, and you will say, yes, sir, we will follow orders, and that's it. And Iran is saying, we have a right to negotiate a deal that is in our best interest and fair to you. And a unipolar hegemon can never do that. Laith Marouf. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, look, the situation has been clear uh, how it's been developing over the last uh, five, six, seven years since the tide turned in Syria. I, I would like to remind everybody how everything that's happening right now in the world actually started in Syria and the beginning of uh, um, a, a retreat of the empire and a defeat of its advances the plan that the U.S. had was to take seven countries in five years, if you remember, in the Middle East. And uh, that's where it was stopped. And from that point on, it was clear either the United States will have to go into full 
war with uh, much bigger uh, states like Iran, like Russia, like China, that have capabilities to defend themselves, or the United States, its uh, empire is uh, seeing its sunset. And this is where we are at. I told you many times on this show before, I have no trust that there will be a, a deal being re-signed with the Americans. The Americans have been trying to delay as much as possible any confrontation with Iran because they've lit up too many fires, uh, especially with uh, Russia in this uh, in this confrontation in the Ukraine. And uh, uh, as we see, it's it's now there's too many uh, lines in Western Asia, whether it's in Lebanon, Palestine, um, with the gas fields and or in the West Bank that is on fire in, in Palestine every night confrontations or uh, in Syria, as we see almost on a, on, on, on a weekly basis now, attacks by the Israelis and counterattacks between the Syrians and the uh, uh, American military. So things are coming to a head and uh, people need to be uh, ready for this bigger confrontation that could uh, spill out across West Asia. Following along Garland's point about the United States unipolar perspective in, 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 in a multipolar world, uh, one of the things that's interesting as they talk about Iran's position in negotiating the JCPOA is Iran is trying to structure conditions that will either prevent the United States from backing out again or will force the United States to pay some penalties if the United States does back out. You take that along the lines uh, with the United States flying B-2 bombers over the Middle East in a show of force aimed at Iran. Doesn't seem to me that Iran is afraid of very much. Particularly, Iran isn't really afraid of retribution by the United States. Yes, uh, these B-52s being flown across uh, the waters, basically from Iran, at these high altitudes uh, that are able to basically, um, you know, view most of the the territory of Iran. This is a provocation, um, and it also comes at a time when the Mossad uh, chief was in uh, the United States, trying to, um, you know appear as if there is a pressure from Israel that is going to cause a confrontation. Look, they, we know that in the next, uh, you know, two, two, three weeks is uh, a possible confrontation here in Lebanon on the gas fields. And if that war starts, uh, definitely it will not be contained only to Lebanon and occupied Palestine it will be uh, spilling over uh, very fast. There is a score that the Syrian military needs to uh, take back from the Zionists for all these attacks that the, the Syrian military has been holding on to, responding to. And, you know, we could uh, clearly see that Iran could enter this fray. Maybe these B-52s flying and the threats that we keep on hearing about this deal not um, being signed are specifically to keep Iran from the uh, regional confrontations. So maybe Syria and Lebanon and, and internally in, in Palestine, they will, that's the American uh, attempt 
by these B-52 flights is to threaten Iran not to enter in such a battle. But I am sure 100 percent if a battle starts uh, between Lebanon and uh, the Zionists, this will be flooding the whole region with a battle zone from uh, Yemen to Iran to uh, Lebanon and everything in between. You know, I did want to ask you this because I think it's related. As the U.S. is, you know, flying B-52s and making these threats, you know, threatening provocations over um, the Middle East, uh, the threads are coming unraveled and the wheels are coming off the cart in in, in, in Europe. We're starting to see massive um, demonstrations against the U.S. The people of the EU are starting to realize they've been had and they are not ready to give their lives and freeze and starve um, for this neocon project of the Biden administration. What, what are your thoughts on the riots that are starting just the tip of the iceberg in the EU and how that will affect the dynamics in the Middle East? Oh, this is going to be uh, all related, obviously, to imagine right now uh, that um, Europe is trying to bring uh, replacement for Russian oil and gas for the winter. And uh, their only hopes is to bring it basically from North Africa and Western Asia. That's their only hopes. And if there is a war uh, in Western Asia, that means everything's out. Already Algeria is refusing to pump more and the uh, oil and gas of Libya is is looted to the max. All of it is already in the European market. Um, we don't even know where it's going, but it's basically all looted. So there's no replacement for the uh, Russian gas and oil except uh, looting the fields of Lebanon and Syria and Palestine and connecting them to Europe. And uh, if if there is war in the region, uh, this plan is uh, dead. It's already anyways dead before it arrived. It, uh, it was before it was born, this child was, was dead. The minute uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the uh, Secretary General of Hezbollah uh, promised to sink all the infrastructure that the Zionists have in the waters of Palestine uh, if Pal- Lebanon is uh, not given its full rights in its uh, territorial waters and the right to extract that has been uh, sanctioned and stopped uh, by the American uh, administration not allowing any corporations to pull out any gas from uh, Lebanese uh, gas fields. So the Israeli army now admits that it's quote-unquote highly probable that one of its soldiers, a sniper, assassinated Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, and now it's being reported in Middle East Eye that another Palestinian journalist has been murdered. And all the United States can say is, well, that was very unfortunate. And if you could please demonstrate through some new policies that this won't happen again, we would greatly appreciate it. Well, look, um, you know, the Zionists are pathological liars and uh, there's nothing, you know, that comes out of their mouth that could be... um, used in, in evidence or uh, for anything worthy of humanity. The 
they have they will continue to basically assassinate uh, Shirin Abu Akhle in her death over and over with these pathetic and racist and genocidal um, outings. Every once in a while, claiming that uh, yes, maybe or not, we know. The Zionists not only killed uh, the journalists that you just mentioned in the last 24 hours, but in the last 48 hours, two journalists were, uh, uh, you know, assassinated by the Zionists. And a third journalist who's from eastern Jerusalem, from Sheikh Jarrah, she's uh, a very visible journalist. They, they just pulled her from her house uh, three nights ago. She's a mother of two and they're put on trial. So they they have her under administrative detention or what they basically in reality is uh, imprisonment with no charge. And it's uh, that is a uh, illegal under international law. And uh, this will continue to be done to Palestinian journalists. Uh, they are a target. They are basically the ones that are promoting Palestinian um, views to the world. And they are one of the main targets. The Zionists have killed tens of uh, Palestinian journalists over the decades and them, especially in uh, times of uh, high confrontations as we see right now with this uh, continued intifada in the West Bank. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Russia's Eastern Economic Forum is taking place in Russia. Also, Ukraine has passed a harsh anti-labor law, and we're going to discuss the political and social instability going on in Europe. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have a Moscow-based international relations security analyst by the name of Mark Sloboda. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. The European Union has seen a wave of protest across France, Germany, and the Czech Republic as residents feel the pinch of soaring energy prices and high costs of living. On Monday, mass demonstrations erupt in Leipzig against the high energy prices organized by the left party and the AFD. My gosh, uh, wait a minute. This is an MSN. Listen to this. According to Sputnik News, around 2,000 people have gathered at Augustusplatz in Leipzig City. You notice I'm not that good with German. In, in the Leipzig City Center to begin what has been proclaimed as a hot autumn to protest. Okay, Mark, all of that. What the heck's going on in Europe? I don't know. With a name like that, I don't know how you could even survive uh, Augustusplatz. All right. So I don't, I don't even blame you for that one. Um, so, I mean, it's it's begun, right? This is the beginning. Uh, we saw uh, large demonstrations break out uh, in multiple places in Germany, in France, uh, some in Spain, and particularly in Prague over the weekend. And they're all protesting over the same thing, energy prices and inflation as well, but primarily energy prices. And um, uh, I think 
they should probably be front line by the protests that we saw in Prague because they were some 70 to 100,000 strong already. Uh, among their demands were not only um, government help to pay with the rising cost of energy, but they were also calling for the resignation of the government neutrality and a return to doing business with Russia uh, for cheaper energy. Um, this is only the beginning of September. The cold weather hasn't even started to set in um, and energy bills are still going up. This is only going to get bigger and uh, more widespread Governments will fall. People will die. People will be killed in protests, excess deaths due to the exposure, the, the cold, particularly among the isolated and the elderly, will rise. Um, and this is going to snowball into to one epic battle of General Winter descending on Europe. On August 31st, Gazprom completely shut down gas deliveries uh, via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and they announced that it would remain closed indefinitely. And so to your point about this is the beginning, this is the beginning of what? Is this the beginning of the end? <laughs> is this the beginning of, of, of irreversible change? Um, and if it's the beginning of irreversible change, do you have any idea of where this all is headed? Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, I, I do think in a broader picture, this is irreversible change because I don't think that there's at the end of this after the conflict in Ukraine is over. I don't think there's going to be any return to business as normal between Europe and Russia. But I think in the shorter term, I'm talking about the beginning of mass political instability of unrest in Europe against the government policies. And we have just in the last few days, seen the German foreign minister, the Green Party uh, maven, um, uh, Baerbach, she uh, announced on TV that she would continue, uh, you know, the current policies on Ukraine um, and against Russia, um, no matter what the German people wanted. I mean, she said it that flat out that it that it was not a question. Well, I think that the people of Europe have begun to disagree with that assessment already. Um, and, you know, there has long been what what academics have identified as a democracy deficit in the EU. Now we're seeing it, quite frankly, among the EU member states as well. This um, announcement uh, from Gazprom, um, it was backed up by a statement by the Russian presidential spokesman Peskov. Um, and he specifically said that um, that the problems in gas deliveries arose due to sanctions that have been imposed on our country and a number of other companies by Western countries, the, uh, including Germany and the UK. There are no other reasons behind supply issues. And he made statements that as long as these sanctions continue, 
then this type of problem will continue to reassert itself. And specifically, the uh, turbine pipes, um, the, the turbine pumps, sorry, um, in the pipeline, along with a number of other equipment, is under contract with, with uh, uh, Siemens, the uh, German company, to work on it. And it is to be worked on in Canada. And Western sanctions preclude that type of work. So it's once again, um, as, as Victor Orban uh, so brilliantly put it, the uh, EU sanctions shooting themselves in the lungs. Um, and there are indeed problems with uh, this uh, turbine. We know because there were um, dual inspections with representatives of the German company Siemens uh, in St. Petersburg. Now, there's a question of whether the the pipeline could continue to be run under less than optimal conditions because of this oil leak in the turbine. Uh, but I, it seems that Russia, you know, uh, has an excuse now to play by the letter of the, uh, um, you know, legal existing contracts and has called for maintenance to be done on the, on the pump. And I absolutely that should be seen as an asymmetric response, a countermeasure against Western uh, existential economic sanctions, the weaponization of their entire economies against Russia. Russia's firing back. But there's still a lot of room for escalation because Nord Stream 1 is still only one of the pipelines that that Russia delivers gas to Europe on. There are still existing pipelines, the Yamal through Belarus, the Brotherhood pipeline through Ukraine, and the Turk Stream uh, pipeline through Turkey, obviously, into southern. Um, those could also have problems or be <laughs> shut down. Um, uh, it is certainly a possibility if uh, things like this ridiculous attempt to cap the, the price that other countries will pay for Russia's oil are pushed forward. Uh, so this is bad and it could get worse. Um, and, you know, if there is an economic game of chicken being played between the EU and Russia, uh, considering the EU's dependence on, on Russia and Russia's relative degree of economic autarky and continued trade with China, I would not want to bet on the EU of, of winning this game of chicken. Oh, well, they've got Liz Truss leading them now. How could they possibly lose? But uh, it, she's technically not part of the EU. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Brit, Britain's got it made now. Uh, Annalena Baerbach did say and she said this. If I give the promise to people in Ukraine, we stand with you as long as you need us. Then I want to deliver no matter what my German voters think. And she said that at a conference called Democracy's Clear and Present Danger, which and then she demonstrated the danger to democracy. But here's what I think. That reminds me of when Russia presented a request last December to NATO and the U.S. and said, let's talk and work out our differences. And the leaders of NATO said, Russia has no say. Russia has no veto. We're not listening to Russia. And Russia issued a veto with Iskander missiles. OK, they have a veto, but it is a physical and kinetic veto in the same way when you say I don't care what the voters think. You must not be able to count because when all of those millions of Germans decide we have had enough, 
Either you'll listen to them or something really bad will happen. And whoever becomes the next leaders of Germany will understand how important it is to listen to them. They are pushing back against the force that apparently they don't understand, which is the desperation of humans when they get cold and hungry. Mark Sloboda. Yeah, we've already seen polls out of Germany that only around half of the Germans uh, right now support the existing policies and that of course that is going to shrink i think as you said when people start getting cold uh and start looking for answers and i mean germany's already provided them right i mean shower less put on sweaters um and um uh, travel to the public heating centers where you'll be able to enjoy a few minutes of warmth. Um, And um, there are reportedly talks already of putting the German military on the streets starting in October to maintain law and order. Or maybe it's hoped that if they put enough military on the streets that that will uh, somehow help increase the ambient temperature. I don't don't know if that's actually going to help things at all. I hate to interrupt you, but I got to make a quick statement on that, Mark. History tells us that when the people turn on the government and the government says to the guards, to the military, go get them. And the military looks at the government and says, wait a minute, we're on their side. The government is done. That is always the 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 the, um, risk that a government takes when it tries to use the military to suppress the people. If the military says we ain't going to do it, it's over for that government and everybody related to it. Sorry about that, Mark, but I thought it was important to make that statement. Go ahead. No, it's a very good point, particularly because a lot of those military members have family at home who will be cold uh, and um, uh, will be struggling with incredible uh, inflation and energy bills. So that is a very distinct possibility that I completely concur with. So President Putin is to deliver his speech at the Eastern Economic Forum. It's expected that 4,000 people from at least 40 countries are coming to discuss the emerging multipolar world order. That's a lot different from what we were told would happen to the Russian economy, uh, Russia basically being made a pariah state. P- President Putin is a maniac. Uh, all of this other, it doesn't sound as though the rest of the world is falling in line behind uh, the United States sanctions regime and wishes, where at least. 4,000 people from 40 countries anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's that's Russia being isolated, I guess, just in a, a Far East forum. Oh, I'm sorry. Russia's only isolated from the West, and that's the only countries actually participating in the sanctions on Russia, and no one else has signed on to them at all. Um, and uh, obviously Putin is uh, attending this forum uh, in a effort to, uh, you know, one, highlight – uh, the number of countries that are, uh, you know, uh, particularly in Asia, uh, where the, the Russian economic focus is is now entirely focused. And actually, I think the West needs a a a, a an applause, a a nod of thanks for that, because I have large large 
long time argued that Russia needs to reorientate its economy towards Asia rather than an unreliable Europe, and uh, they've they've forced the issue. So I'm I'm quite thankful to them on that regard. But um, th- there is going to be a lot of opportunity for investment in Russia, despite the threat of Western sanctions, simply because the commodities that that people want because of the high energy prices are going to be so enticing as we see China and India and even Saudi Arabia buying up Russian energy the same will be for Russian other commodities and they'll be looking at increasing ways to get it out to their economies LNG terminals as a big possibility for foreign investment in Russia right now and the economy still looks very good. There was an article just in the last over the week, last week from The Economist, one of the most anti-Russian rags out of there from the UK, why the Russian economy keeps beating expectations. And actually, there is a report out from the Russian government that it's beating the Russian government's own expectations. They had forecast beginning when these sanctions began uh, that the Russian economy would contract by 23% of GDP. That's really substantial. But it, it falls in line with what you might think of with an existential economic sanctions war. That has been revised down and down and down again. And now they're looking at, and they've got international agreement on this from UN bodies, that the, the, the contraction in the Russian economy, because of this huge economic war of sanctions on Russia will now be somewhere between two and 4%. That's it. That's it. Um, And the ruble is stronger than ever. Uh, um, It's stronger than it, well, not more than ever, but definitely stronger than it was before this whole uh, started in February. Um, And uh, unemployment is low. All the economic indicators, even manufacturing and industry are, are ticking up and i don't even really see how that's possible uh but you know these are numbers that are confirmed by the u.n at this point so uh the russian economy keeps beating everyone's expectations be that the west be that russia's own or beating mine and um i you know uh what can you do we've been talking with mark Svoboda. he's a moscow-based international relations security analyst you're listening to the critical hour on radio sputnik i'm garland nixon here with my co-host dr wilmer leon there's more on the other side stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Canada has a long history of supporting economic gangsterism in Haiti. Also, Haitian civilians are protesting the government in the nation's capital. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Yves Engler. He's a Montreal-based writer, author, and activist. Mr. Engler, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. You can find his great article at jacobin.com. In Haiti, Canada can be relied on to support oligarchic gangsterism. Eves writes, for decades, Canada has been a consistent bulwark against the success of popular forces in Haiti. As Haiti's capital is engulfed in protests and violence, Canadian calls for international intervention to, quote, help sound ominous, not reassuring. Eves Engler, your thoughts. 
Yeah, the Canadian government has been uh, leading the international charge over the past few weeks to, uh, to one, to continue the UN mission in Haiti, uh, to bolster that UN mission, and, uh, and to basically sort of generate uh, international attention uh, towards Haiti. And uh, it's obviously all done under the guise of Canada's just trying to help out. Uh, but if you look at any of the recent history, you'll find that uh, Canada is, after the U.S., the, the, the second most important actor in, um, in causing uh, instability and, and, uh, and uh, impoverishment uh, in the country. And that has many facets to it. Most importantly, the 2004 overthrow of the elected government and thousands of elected officials. But but just even in you know recent weeks and months, uh, Canada was a uh, staunch uh, supporter of uh, Jovenel Moïse, the uh, the uh, repressive, uh, uh, corrupt, uh, illegitimate president, right until his last days. And and uh, one of the things you see going on right now is that. The Haitian police have have killed a number of uh, protesters calling for uh, Ariel Henry, the uh, the uh, foreign imposed uh, uh, leader. Um, and Canadian officials go on and on about how they you know trying to help Haiti and how they they uh, but they don't ever say a word about how the Canadian funded and armed uh, trained uh, Haitian police force is uh, you know killing protesters. They they've completely failed to condemn that. So the idea that Canada is, you know, trying to help Haiti is not based in two decades or more of, of history, but it's not even based in, you know, recent weeks where you can't even condemn a uh, police force that you're backing when they kill, uh, when they kill uh, uh, protesters. You write, threatened by popular forces fighting for sovereignty, Ottawa has repeatedly chosen to back agents of oligarchic gangsterism. Talk about why Canada is so involved and entrenched. Uh, from what I've read over the years, it has a lot to do with natural resources. It has a lot to do with, I believe, Canada wanting access to Haitian gold. And I think uh, the Clintons are involved in this, if I'm reading this correctly. Can, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think there's two major facets. One is that Ottawa is, is, uh, <clears throat> is, is helping Washington. In, in its policy in Haiti. That's one important facet. The other important facet is that Canada is, is tied in with the Haitian oligarchy, which uh, is predominantly uh, light-skinned in, a, in a, an overwhelmingly uh, a black uh, country. And uh, if you look at, uh, you know, André Aped, he's the he's a big sweatshop owner in Haiti. He was the head of the, the group that... Uh, civil society group that helped to uh, overthrow the elected president in 2004. He's a major subcontractor for Montreal-based Gildenware, uh, a uh, sweatshop uh, an apparel company. And uh, they didn't like it when the, the elected government increased the minimum wage. Um, so that's like a direct tie. And then when the Canadian government's organized conferences on Haiti, they invited André Aped to, uh, to some of those, uh, those events. 
Um, the Canadian mining companies have also Canadian mining companies dominate all around the world, right? They they you know dominate throughout Latin America and Africa, in Asia. Um, more than half of the world's mining companies are based or listed in, in Canada, and the same thing goes for uh, uh, Haiti. Um, there has been a number of Canadian mining companies that have uh, at one point one had uh, prospecting rights for ten percent of Haitian territory. So one one single Canadian company uh, uh, had prospecting rights for 10% of the country. Um, and you find that there's a, there's a history where, the, going back to the, the 1980s, where Canadian company Saint-Gervier was was angry with peasant opposition uh, uh, to their to their mining uh, efforts, and they basically blamed that on uh, on the Jean Bertrand Aristide and the, the Family Lavalas movement. Um, so, so Canadian companies have clearly shown an interest. Mining companies have clearly shown an interest in Haiti, and they've seen that there is opposition to their mining in Haiti, and uh, and they're uh, you know hostile to politicians that. Um, he um, uh, you know, local concerns. Um, they want uh, they want politicians in place that are just completely dependent on the outside uh, corporate uh, forces. You you talked about the current um, and I use this word guardedly leader of Haiti, Ariel Henry, a guy who has been connected to um, the uh, closely connected to the assassination of the the, the premier uh, the previous prime minister. What are your thoughts on Henry uh, Ariel Henry? You talk about the council, the wise that situation. Talk to our listeners and and explain to them what you were getting at. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, basically, the guy was put in place by a tweet. I mean, basically, after Jovenel Moïse was was assassinated, there was a uh, battle between three different uh, uh, politicians, uh, all within the the ruling uh, a party, uh, and the with no you know constitutional rationale. Uh, the core group of which is the U.S., Canada, France, uh, Germany, the Organization of American States, UN, and EU representatives, they just said, "No, this is the guy who who should be running Haiti," and that was Ariel Henry. And literally, after like 24, 48 hours after putting out the tweet, they got the the power structure within the country to fall in behind uh, Henri. And and uh, you know this is somebody. So his his he has no popular base. He's going. He has no constitutional legitimacy. Uh, uh, he's completely dependent on uh, foreign backing, and of course the repressive apparatus, the police force that the Canadian government, American government, have been you know funding and training, and are, you know to a large extent have a great deal of influence over. Um, and and uh, you know his roots, if you look, go backwards. And he, after they ousted uh, Aristide in 2004, they created this this body, which is just a, again, it was a foreign. There's no little no constitutional basis for it. They called it the, the Conseil des Sages in French, the Council of the Wise, where they just decided that this guy who'd been living in Florida, Gerard uh, Latatou, for he'd been living in Florida for like 15 years someone of Haitian descent, but they decided he was going to be running Haiti after the 2004 coup. And Ariel Henry was on the Council of Wise that was you know, created by the U.S., France, and Canada after the 2004 coup. So it gives you a little sense of his, of his background. He's somebody who has been a 
you know, an agent of the foreign forces uh, uh, within Haiti. And, you know, the situation was not a good situation at the time of, uh, of Jovenel Moïse's assassination. Jovenel Moïse himself had already become, uh, uh, you know, unconstitutional by the vast majority of readings of the, of the Haitian constitution. But basically over the past year, when Henri has been, you know, the... the person appointed to run run the country things have just gotten you know even even worse and uh and the canadian government is you know continues with this this charade of you know the the haitian government quote and quote unquote government will will sign international documents on behalf of haiti and the Canadian government american government act like this is you know legitimate uh uh, uh leader and and it's uh, you know it's a it's a it's a grim situation, and I think that uh, you know it's it's a, just a sign. The fact that Ariel Henry is leading the country is a sign of just how uh, foreign dominated um, uh, Haiti is uh, at this point. There's an interesting piece in Haiti Liberté. The Episcopal Church of Haiti stands out from Father France Cole, and it has to do with a container where uh, automatic weapons were found and Father Franz Cole, I guess the, the, the container was, was sent to him and now the Episcopal Church is disassociating themselves from him. Can, can you speak to that? Yeah, so there's, there's you know, a whole bunch of uh, uh, gang violence and insecurity in the country. And you know, there's all kinds of terrible stories of people being killed. And, and uh, But there's no you know, Haiti doesn't produce guns, right? So the guns are coming from somewhere else and the guns are overwhelmingly uh, coming from the U.S. And and they're, they're coming through ports uh, that, you know, are run by, you know, families like the Biggio family, the, well, I think the wealthiest family in the country, light-skinned family that's a sort of partially based in Florida and partially based in Haiti. And, and so there's, you know, a lot of anger at... You know who's bringing these guns into the country, and and how do uh, people living in you know uh, impoverished neighborhoods of Port-au-Prince, where you know people are living on a dollar or two a day, how is it that they have access to guns that are you know sometimes you know certainly hundreds of dollars and often even into the into the thousands of dollars, and and so uh, that's the context of this um, this uh, reverend being uh, uh, arrested. Uh, for bringing guns in the country is it's it, there's you know there's all this you know speculation of its different you know political factions and and the wealthy oligarchs that are that are financing different elements of uh, of the uh, of the different gang warfare for for control of turf there's also a lot of concern around whether the foreign um, powers, they, they, you know, the at, at different at different moments, sometimes violence uh, uh, serves their purposes to, you know, legitimate the the extension of UN mission in Haiti, or potentially to, you know, resend uh, UN soldiers to Haiti, which there were, of course, UN soldiers in Haiti for for a big UN occupation force for 13 years. And that, you know, UN mission has in a smaller form has continued right up until today. So, so the, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Reverend being arrested uh, and this, this being found that these guns were supposed to be sent to a, to a church um, is uh, kind of fits within this whole question of how are guns coming into the country. And even the UN is kind of, 
that the concern over this issue has you know reached the UN um, uh, resolutions and the you know discussing trying to uh, you know, stop guns from coming in the country that are fueling fueling a conflict. But there's real questions about whether this is you know this is serious because again. Haiti doesn't produce weapons. Almost all the guns are coming in uh, from the U.S. And uh, you know what are the different? Uh, what's enabling these weapons to uh, to enter the country? Yeah, and I, I do recall about a year or so ago there was uh, several articles about some U.S. basically mercenaries who were caught bringing guns and they had a bunch of guns and they were brought. Uh, they were caught bringing guns into the country in Haiti. We only got about one minute. Yeah, you know, and and uh, not just bringing guns in the country, they were seemed like they were on some sort of mission. With it's not exactly clear what the objective was, is possibly trying to steal a bunch of money for uh, for Jovenel Moïse. But but what was really incredible about that situation is there was the American embassy when they were arrested. The American embassy intervened to get them out of the country within 24, 48 hours, and none of the uh, foreign uh, mercenaries were, were arrested. The, the single Haitian uh, that was with them, he he was arrested and kept in jail. But all of the foreigners were able to, you know, go up, go back to Florida and, and go about their uh, uh, business. So, you know, another example of this sort of foreign interference in Haitian affairs with different violent uh, uh, actors. Yeah, as they uh, as they say in the Politico, that has all the earmarks of a CIA operation. Eve Zangler is a Montreal-based writer, author, and activist. You can go to Jacobin Magazine to find his great article. It is in Haiti. Canada can be relied on to support oligarchic gangsterism. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Ethiopians in the U.S. are protesting U.S. support for the ethno-fascist TPLF. Also, we discussed the World Health Organization's chief and its ties to the U.S.-supported organization. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Thomas Mountain. Thomas is a journalist and historian. Thomas, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Great to be back. Ethiopian diaspora groups prepare to protest West support for the TPLF, deploring the international community, in particular the UN, United States, and the UN, U, EU member states for their continued sympathy towards the TPLF. The Ethiopian advocacy, advocacy organizations worldwide passed a resolution calling for peace on September 2nd. Thomas Mountain, doesn't sound like the Ethiopian people are happy about President Biden's policy towards their nation. Your thoughts? No, you know, this latest fighting broke out on August 24th, and it's basically instigated, supported, and armed by the CIA. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's so many similarities between what's going on in Ukraine and Ethiopia because the CIA, you know, wrote a handbook on uh, overthrowing regimes and then uh, replacing them with client regimes. And there's so many similarities going on between the two. Um, you know, the United States makes the victim the, the aggressor and the aggressor the victim. And that's what's going on in Ethiopia right now. Because you know, Ethiopia is, has been the policeman on the beat in the Horn of Africa. 
a strategically critical part of the world where every year $800 billion worth of uh, commerce goes through the Horn of Africa. So the United States can't afford to lose the Horn of Africa. So, I mean, Ethiopia has been their policeman on the beat. And when 2018, Ethiopia started to break with that and become independent, the U.S. set up their proxy client, the TPLF terrorist regime, to for regime change. And this, in, in uh, November 4th, 2020, you know, just in the U.S. election was taking place, coincidence, the uh, TPLF tried to relaunch an attempt to take over Ethiopia with the U.S. instigation and support. So this was failed mainly because the Eritrean military intervention at the request of the Ethiopians crushed their army. But, you know, some strategic mistakes were made. Ethiopia pulled out of Ethiopia, out of Tigray, and the TPLF came back and did some tremendous damage to Ethiopia. Now the Ethiopian government's finally set up the Tigray Liberate, People's Liberation Front, a terrorist organization, launched an attack again on the Ethiopia, and now the Ethiopian government's crushing them. And it's just about game over. They're just Ethiopian uh, military is capturing city after city, strategic hideout after hideout, and uh, the TPLF uh, conscript army's on the run. It's made up mainly of child soldiers that they forcibly recruited hundreds of thousands of them. By their own admission, they've lost hundreds of thousands of these child soldiers in the war against the Ethiopian government. And it's all supported by the U.S. and instigated by the U.S. I mean, there's something like 10 flights at least of Antonov cargo planes coming, came in from Sudan in this past few months, you know, bringing new arms to, to the TPLF regime. And, and everything the U.S. has done is to try to make the Ethiopian government a problem and what I've been predicting is that, you know, when the, when the eventually, because the Ethiopian people are completely fed up with the TPLF terrorist guys in there, and uh, the Ethiopian government's going to have to finish them, or the I think the people are going to change the government because the people are just really fed up with these criminals that have been running their country or are attacking them. And uh, at this point, the Ethiopia is about to win. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's not only Ethiopia is involved in all this. The demonstration today in D.C. has also got a lot of Eritreans there. Because the Ethiopians and the Eritreans are both been oppressed and attacked and and paid a big price because of these terrorists the U.S. is supporting. So, you know, both peoples are out in the streets today once again protesting the U.S. support for these guys. Now, you know, there like I say, the, the similarities with what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's like you've got a Nazi regime in Ukraine, and you almost these TPLF terrorists are practically Nazi themselves. There, I wrote an article way back in 2003 saying Afro Nazis. In Africa, in Ethiopia, about these guys and how you know they've got this ethnic superiority complex, and um, they're going around just destroying, raping, and pillaging, and destroying Ethiopia in their attempt to regain control. So, the thing is, like I say, the U.S. has got a lot at stake here, and it's very critical to them. And I think the U.S. is not going to take the defeat of the TPLF uh, lying down. I think they're going to—they've already looked like they're blocking all the IMF loans that, you know, Ethiopia has been dependent on for decades now, to, you know, just to feed their people, keep their economy afloat. They've uh, suspended the free trade agreement with Ethiopia through hundreds of thousands of Ethiopian small business people out of work. And uh, now I think they're going to be, they're be blocking all Western aid to Ethiopia. So they're going to try to starve the Ethiopian government out, force them to kneel down and accept U.S. hegemony in the region. But, uh, I don't think the Ethiopian people are going to put up with this. And I think the, this is hopefully this is going to be the end of the TPLF because I've been writing a book about it, the CIA and the Horn of Africa for a couple of years now, and I couldn't finish it until the TPLF is finished. And uh, hopefully that'll be finished and I can finish my book. 
So you've got Abiy Ahmed's government is negotiating through the African Union and former Nigerian President Obasanjo represents the African, he's the African Union's high representative. What role is he playing here in all of this? Who is he really negotiating for? Well, you know, he's sort of just a, I think it's all been public relations. The Ethiopian government knows that people are demanding they finish the TPLF regime. And the fact that the TPLF regime relaunched in a war, I think, is the final straw. And that Obasanjo and these guys, they're, you know, it's more like public relations to say, oh, we want peace. But they know they're going to have to come in and wipe these guys out. It's a it's a cancer eating at the body of the Ethiopian people, and they have to cut it out. And that's what they're doing right now. And it's just about game. But who is but who is he whose interests are whose interest is he protecting? Is he there more as a mouthpiece for the United States or is he there as a truly independent arbiter trying to find peace and try to do what's best for uh, for the people of Ethiopia? Well, you know, I wrote an article uh, entitled uh, African Union uh, Tool of Western Rule, which is basically, you know, goes into the whole history of how the African Union was set up as a neo-colonialist front for the Western powers. And that's, you know, Obasanjo has played that role. The African Union has played that role historically. They've never been really for independence. I mean, it was headquartered in Ethiopia from 1961 or two, and the Ethiopia was already fighting an anti-independence war against the, the, what they'd colonized in Eritrea. So how can you be against colonialism when you're fighting a war against one of your colonies? So, I mean, it, it's been, you know, the African Union has been a tool of Western rule from its creation. And there's been a lot of talk about it being otherwise, but it's just not. The bottom line is it has been. And Obasanjo was a gangster military leader of Nigeria that, you know, just crushed the opposition and put a lot of op- uh, activists to death and legal executions. And, and uh, you know, to bring him in and say somehow he wants peace. The whole peace thing was a front by the U.S. to, to try to get time, buy time for the TPLF to regroup and rearm. They used... Uh, the UN, US, uh, and the USAID and the World Food Program to, you know, to literally turn over a thousand heavy trucks that they brought food in that was stolen by the TPLF to feed their army, and then they used the trucks to haul their troops around, their conscript army around to get ready for a war. So I mean, this uh, this whole buying time through so-called negotiations was what the US was working on to, you know, to rearm and re-equip and give the TPLF time to come back and attempt to, to win the war against the Ethiopian government. So it's all been a big front, a PR campaign. And, and you know, whenever you see the U.S. saying one thing, expect them to actually be doing something else, just like they did to do in Ukraine. You know, they're doing the same thing in Ethiopia. Another article, and this is also from the Orinoco Tribune, UN World Health, World Health Organization Chief Dr. Tedros Adhanom is also the world's most prominent advocate for the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. He has said nothing about the TPLF's recent theft of fuel intended for UN, UN relief efforts in Ethiopia. Your thoughts, Thomas? Well, he was one of the top four in the TPLF, very close to the former leader of uh, TPLF, Mela Sanawi. He was personally in charge of the genocide in the Ogaden, where they where they blocked all food and medical aid blockade for, for like 12 or 13 years to the to the people in the Ogaden during 
a series of the worst droughts and famines in history. So this guy is a big-time criminal. He, he's proven his loyalty to the U.S., which basically, because it's the main funder of the WHO, gets the CIA, gets the vet, whoever comes in. And because he was carrying out a genocide on behalf of the U.S., he was CIA decided he was more than qualified to head the TPLF. This guy has been involved in massive theft. I wrote an article, two articles, one called uh, The Gangster Head of the, of the WHO and another one called billion dollar fee for the uh at the hwho about how you know this guy's this pedro adhanam Jesus has been carrying out all these crimes against the ethiopian people for many many years how he's stolen billions of dollars from the the so-called western aid to ethiopia goes in into his own pockets and the pockets of his cronies and the tplf this guy is one of the worst criminals in the world and he's the head of the who which, you know, like I say, people don't talk too much about the fact that the WHO is controlled by the, UA, by the U.S. because the U.S. is the major funder. So they get to vet whoever comes into power there. So they put uh, Tedros, doctor, I call him Tedros, a terrorist, into power, and they've kept him there. So, you know, everything that's going on in the WHO is basically what the CIA wants. How do you see this finally shaking out, particularly since fighting has resumed uh, on the 24th of August? Uh, how does this shake itself out? Well, you know, my wife's Eritrean, and so she understands the Amhara, the main language that this news, uh, news is being covered in. And uh, there, there's just been, just for the last uh, two days, there's, there's just one defeat after another for the TPLF. I mean, they've captured even most of their main hideouts where they used to hide. You know, they're on their way to the Mekale, the capital of Tigray. You know, there are uh, major surrenders going on by their conscript army. I don't see them lasting more than maybe after the weekend. I mean, may, they may go on a little bit off longer than that. But the problem is, you know, they, they're going to, whatever remnants they have, is going to flee out into the countryside and try to destabilize the region, which is what they did back. 2021. So, but I think that the times have changed because, you know, that uh, people of Tigray are pretty much fed up with the TPLF now. You know, they see just how corrupt and how they take their children and, and send them off to mass slaughter. It's human wave charging into automatic weapon fire and, and uh, steal their aid and, and force them to give up their children to go to the army in exchange for aid. So I don't think that uh, Tigrayan people are going to support them very much longer. I think you know most of the Tigrayan people are fed up with them. So I think this time they're going to they're finally going to pull them up by by their roots and finish this. It, it's like Afro Nazism in their country. It's sort of like uh, Ukraine. The uh, Putin has had to say that Russia is going to have to denazify Ukraine. Well, you know the Prime Minister Abiy is going to have to de dewayanize or de TPLFize uh, Tigray in Ethiopia. Thanks a lot. We've been talking with Thomas Mountain. He's a journalist and historian. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 